Hello there, friend. Thank you for listening to Kind Mind. My name is Todd. Hope you're doing well and feeling well. If you're supporting this work on Patreon, thank you for making all of this possible. If you're able to pitch in $5 a month there and access the bonus content, and now we have a new Transcendental Poetry Club online, you can do so at patreon.com slash kindmind. We recently had our first Kind Mind gathering in person at the Homestead in Plano, Illinois. And oh my gosh, it was everything I dreamed it could be. Thanks to Mary Kay and Chet, the owners, for making the space beautiful. The weather was gorgeous. We hung out afterwards till late. and There was a fire pit on the property for us to gather. So I'm grateful for everybody who came, also made it special. Thanks to Kim Miner for the welcome and introduction. It's great to see faces that I hadn't seen in years. People came from far and wide to join us. And if you didn't make the first one, there will be other opportunities. Last Tuesday of every month, next one is September 27th. Doors open at 6 p.m. Come get some drinks and even have dinner if you'd like there. Meet a friend or make a friend. The info for that, as well as the other upcoming events, are always on my website, michaeltodfink.com slash events. I'm also coming back to Speakeasy this month, September 25th, on Sunday morning at 1030 to talk about release. So join Maureen and the Speakeasy community for an engaging conversation. On October 1st, I'll be back at TEDx Naperville. And this year the theme is community. And so Arthur and the crew have something really magical planned. It's being held outdoors at McDonald Farm, rain or shine, just simply dress the part. And I don't want to tell you too much about what I'm going to be offering, but I will be there hosting an idea shop. It's going to be spontaneous and interactive and immersive and experiential. But most of all, it's just another opportunity for us to connect and for past speakers to return and share. So I hope you can come if you're interested. On Thursday evening, October 6th, I will be back in Indiana in coming to the Bain Gallery in Carmel, Indiana. So if you're in the Indianapolis area or know anyone down there, please pass this along. Thanks to Lindsay Trossel for coordinating the event. And also thanks to Robin Bolomo, who is sharing his space with us and also his master photography. The event is free. However, space is very limited, so registration is required. You can find the links to that on my website as well. Now, this episode is shorter than normal, which fits the theme, Law of Subtraction. So many examples of how less is more, like watercolor painting. Or I'm reminded of a time when I was learning how to improvise with a jazz guitar teacher. And in the beginning, he asked me to limit the melody to only one note in one position on the guitar. And I thought, how can I craft anything meaningful that way? But it invites you into deeper levels of understanding the art of musical expression because you still have timbre and dynamicism and rhythm and timing and more. So in a world where we're constantly pressured to believe that we don't have enough, we're not doing enough, or we're not enough. It can be relieving and even rebellious 
to celebrate the innateness of beauty, freedom, and wisdom. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I look forward to connecting with you soon. And all the best to you, always. Thank you. When you stop trying to get it, you will have it. That doesn't make any sense on the surface. This must sound so counterintuitive given the popularity and the proliferation of the law of attraction. But doesn't all the affirming and manifesting work reinforce the notion that we don't have what we want in the first place? and create a sense of lack as we keep chasing or trying or praying for that which we want. It it's, it's also serves as a reminder that you are not that. So the pursuit of happiness and wanting to be happy is itself a negative experience. Whereas accepting yourself as you are is a positive experience. I've heard adolescent patients specifically often say that they want to be famous, but they don't know what for. We don't understand that it's never really the thing, but the feeling that we're after. And this is also what puts us in this um, self-defeating cycle. Schopenhauer called this the will to life or the world as will, that there's this driving force of dissatisfaction. It's very similar to the wheel of samsara in Buddhism or Hinduism. It's perpetual, it's endless. It uh, is responsible for the cycles of birth and death. And only by releasing our participation in this drama does one gain freedom. But there's a paradox to it, and that's what we're exploring tonight. If you think about playing a video game, There's a sense that I have to get to the next level. It's a driving force in the gamer. And yet, there's no way the player is going to be content just arriving at the next level. That is the virtual world as well, but this so-called world is operating in the same principle. We get to that condition, but it's never enough. It's sort of like eating a meal and being content only until it's fully digested and then the cycle repeats. So there's a common adage that you get out of life what you put in, or you get out of any endeavor what you put in. But is that really true? I mean, have you experienced the opposite? Do you get out of a relationship what you put in when that person doesn't truly love you? Do you get out of work what you put in when the employer or the organization doesn't truly value you or appreciate you? If you can relate to to those examples, then you know that philosophy is incomplete. In the law of subtraction, which I, I call it law of subtraction, or the law of reverse effort, it's like this quote that's often attributed to Nathaniel Hawthorne, but he didn't say this came from some 
mysterious poetry periodical, I think, in the 1800s. It's, um, happiness is like a butterfly which, when pursued, is always beyond our grasp, but which, if you sit down quietly, may alight upon you. So this is sometimes called the law of reversed effort. It's a little different than another philosophy which I often bring up, either directly or indirectly in our meetings, which is called Wu Wei in Chinese philosophy, which is the principle of acting without acting, responding naturally, or acting naturally, or tuning one's will to, to nature. This law of reversed effort isn't so philosophically deep. It recognizes that we have desires and that our efforts to pursue them or the force of the urgency and the anxiety that that creates is counterproductive. There was a French psychologist, Emile Cui, that I think coined the law of reverse effort. It's a mindset that understands the restlessness of our desires. He said it really, really well when he put it like this. When the imagination and willpower are in conflict or are antagonistic, it's always the imagination which wins without any exception. When nothing is on the line, we're at our best. Two activities that have really dominated my life are music and basketball or sports, especially the first half of my life. I recognized something in sports before music that I was really skilled, especially at basketball, on the street, in the playground. I would really get like my, my confidence built up playing at the YMCA or playing in the parks from my peers just telling me, you know, sometimes, Todd, you're, you're in such a flow, it's really hard to stop you, to guard you. But then when it came to the organized game at school and competing for starting position, it seemed like I would always struggle. Gradually, I realized it's because of the pressure to perform, a kind of performance anxiety, I suppose, that's also true in music. And then it was especially true in the varsity games in high school when we're competing in an organized way with officials and with the crowd and so on. What the psychologist Kui is talking about here is that when there is a result to be obtained, it triggers my imagination. When I'm playing basketball to earn a starting position, now I can imagine my failure at obtaining that. Whereas on the street, there's nothing to be gained. I don't get a trophy, I don't get a, a title, I don't get a status. By winning, it's purely for fun. We sometimes think of this as the difference between professional and amateur. Amateur evolving from a more love so the amateur does it just for the love, the pro does it for money. The skill peaks when it's done for love, not for the outcome. So it's almost like the amateur is the true peak performer. In this book, The Power of Subconscious by Joseph Murphy, 
there's an example of a, a simple task of walking on a plank that's on the ground. If you ask somebody to walk across that plank, they can do it no problem, unless they're impaired in some way or, or have an injury. But if you raise that plank, same size plank, same distance, but now it's across the ledges of two skyscrapers, the same people that could easily walk across it may really doubt themselves, may actually fall off it. Because now that you've changed the conditions and you've really introduced imagination, what would it look like if I fell? So this is the hidden enemy that people don't realize when you want something, when you're pursuing something. So then the task in this approach is to remove the imagination so that we can be at our best and access what we want. I like calling it the law of subtraction because this way of phrasing it, I think, is in the spirit of curating the mind, pruning our life into elegance, stripping away the extraneous to reveal our essence. And that's what this podcast is uh, exploring and the message that it's promulgated. And that's also what I'm working on in, in the book, too. When somebody is clear or confident, they don't need the affirmations, right? A, a human being doesn't have to continuously look themselves in the mirror and affirm that they're a human being. Reminds me of a scene in this comedy when I was in college, Half-Baked, about smoking pot with Dave Chappelle. And their friend gets arrested for drugs. He's trying to overcome his fear of being in the jail. He's looking in a mirror and he's continuously telling himself, you're not a fish, you're a man. And then by doing this, his mouth accidentally makes a, a fish face. <laughs> he's like, where did that come from? And it's an example of the imagination when you're doing the affirmation. It's almost like we can't help it. Think of insomnia and the effort applied to fall asleep at night. The more we try, the more we, we fail. Because when you're looking at the clock and you're trying to relax, it makes you anxious. It stirs the imagination to think about how tired you'll be tomorrow if you don't fall asleep soon. I mentioned basketball in my life, but, but I also I want to just say that music was the same exact way. When you're in the practice or you're in the rehearsal, it's very light, the pressure is low, nobody's watching, and everybody seemed to be able to reach a level of mastery that was hard to achieve in concert. A musician rehearses or practices a part not to learn it, but to unlearn their doubt about it. If you can practice it enough, you know how to play it. If you can play it once, ever, in any situation, that means you know how to do it. Right? So the idea that I'm still learning it isn't actually true. When the, the pattern is still novel, you can imagine forgetting it. You can imagine being distracted and losing your place in the music. With enough practice, the distraction, the imagination is actually what gets shed. And in time, 
The real practice is the performance. It's the same with sports. When you play enough games, pressure becomes so natural that it's no longer novel, and therefore the, the imagination stops getting the best of you. Because you tour and tour and tour, being in the concert experience no longer feels like there's an outcome that you're chasing. It becomes more natural. And then a person isn't in a mode of desire. In Zen, there's a parable of a master calligrapher who's writing some characters with his highly perceptive student sitting next to him. And after he makes these characters, he looks at the student and says, what do you think? And his student finds some flaws and is very critical of his teacher. The teacher agrees, reviewing his own work with the student, and tries again. But now the teacher is starting to feel the pressure of the eyes of his student looming over the work. This time the student has even more critical things to say. As difficult as it is to hear, the, the master agrees. Finally, the student loses interest in criticizing the work of his teacher. And then the master draws the characters again. And when his student looks at it again, he says, Now this is a masterpiece. So it's a, an example of the, the law of reverse effort. I mean, this ultimately, as Alan Watts talked about it, points to the enlightenment experience, what that involves. He said, I think in the wisdom of insecurity, we don't know what we want for two reasons. One, because we already have it. Or two, we don't know ourselves. And when he says we don't know ourselves, he doesn't mean we don't know ourselves yet. He means knowing ourself isn't something that we do. As a knife does not cut itself, fire does not burn itself, or light does not illuminate itself. How can the self be an object of knowing? By whom? Self-knowledge is a misnomer, and if we don't know ourself, then how do you answer the next question, what does the self want? So there's a paradox here. Reflecting on that, when you stop trying to get it, you got it. Or you are it. If you think about different characters in spiritual fiction, or in scriptures or mythology, like Siddhartha in Herman Hesse's novel, is trying and trying and seeking and seeking and pursuing truth. But at the end of the book, he's content just being with the river. This is similar to the actual Buddha as well, practicing and practicing and then not trying, and then just letting go. In the book of Job, Job suffers all of these hardships with financial ruin and death of his loved ones. 
And then his three close friends believe that he must be sinning. He, he must not be right with God. And ultimately, God intervenes, talks to Job and the friends. I think the, the ultimate message of the book of Job is that you can't understand by trying to understand. Aldous Huxley said something similar too. The best we can do is relax into being and let understanding be revealed. Now, the last thing I want to say about this law of reverse effort is that it also, I think, explains what spiritual ego is. If the way to get what you want is to not try, or the way of reverse effort, as in when you try to fall asleep, you stay awake. When you try to stay awake, you fall asleep. When you try to sink in the water, you float to the top. When you try to float, it seems like you're sinking. When you chase the butterfly, it's always out of your grasp. When you sit down, it alights on your shoulder. So spiritual ego then arises when the aspirant applies this to awakening and then feels pride at the denial of pursuing the desire. So when the aspirant makes a show of what they're not doing, that is the trap of spiritual ego. That may happen in, in a variety of ways, but sometimes people will trade in their possessions for beads or for crystals or for other symbols of one's lack. Right? Now, not that there's anything wrong with having any of these things, only that if the person feels a sense of pride at what they've renounced, then we're in a very difficult prison to get out of. It's the most subtle and uh, can take forever to recognize, to realize. Soren Kierkegaard said that life can only be understood backwards but it must be lived forwards. It reminds us that all we have is now. We don't know what it all means. We don't necessarily know what today means until we may look back at another point in the future. If we obsess about that, then we miss out on the living, which is only in the now. Live now. Live well. Live in a relaxed state of mind even when you have a goal, because we must be here to do something. So we might as well try to purify our aspirations. And we purify our aspirations by offering the fruits to nature or to the divine, like described in the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna's instructing Arjuna, you do your duty and leave the fruit to me. In the book, The War of Art, author Stephen Pressfield makes a distinction for the artist, for the creative person, between hierarchy and territory. He emphasizes that when you try to create something and your focus is on the hierarchy, oh, this will really be good. If I do it this way, it will accord with the times and will be reviewed more favorably. And he said, then you're, you're operating on wrong footing. The artist's responsibility is to focus on their territory, which means 
what is going on in your world with your tools, with your resources, with your authenticity, and leave it up to chance how that impacts the hierarchy. It's very similar to that that philosophy of renunciation of the fruits of our actions as prescribed in the Bhagavad Gita. There's also, um, I don't remember who it was, another author who said that it's much better to build something that a hundred people love rather than something a million people kind of like. The capitalist overarching culture is always trying to convince you to go for the latter. You know, maybe think about love. When you have a crush on somebody and we get a little obsessed, it's always as if that love is just beyond our reach. This person would be such a good fit for me, but somehow they just don't seem to want this in the way I want it. Or with our health, can you relate to how the desire, the despair to be well could influence you to resort to such aggressive interventions that you actually poison the body. And not to draw too broad of a stroke here, but I kind of think that Western medicine, allopathic medicine, the the healthcare industry, is almost built on that demand. Because like as Voltaire said, healthcare, and this was so long ago, mainly consists of amusing the patient while nature heals the disease. (laughs) I don't mean to say that that's always true, but it often is true when the lengths that we would go to to get better, actually the lengths that we would go to to treat the symptoms really are poisoning our body in many cases, right? And when we deny the symptoms instead of slowly treating the root, you actually lose out, you disconnect from the essential biofeedback. Pain is actually telling us the accuracy of the intervention. But what clients want, what customers want from the industry is to make the pain go away. And that's actually to, you know, to claim false victory, to just remove the pain. So it's hard to lean into the pain, but you can understand how the law of reverse effort then would apply to health and to love, and to justice. Because sometimes when anger gets the best of us, when the world is unfair or circumstances are unfair, you can also imagine how one absorbs the worst of their enemy in their anger. So there also has to be a certain amount of ease in the mind and embodiment of the vision, like as Gandhi pointed out, or as MLK has showed too, 